Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 4 and reading verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 25. And once again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And yet he did not waver through unbelief, regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Some of you may be aware of an engineering saga that has been unfolding over the past several years in San Francisco involving a 58-story residential building containing 419 luxury condominiums known as the Millennium Tower. Opened to residents in 2009, it was not long before engineers became aware of the fact that the building was sinking. Though it was situated on a 10-foot thick concrete foundation that rested on 950 concrete friction piles or pillars that were each 80 feet deep, that themselves rested upon the dense sands of what is known as the Colma Formation, the geotechnical engineers estimated that the layer below that 
known as the Old Bay Clay, would, over the lifetime of the building, compress evenly another four to six inches. That turned out to be a miscalculation. Before construction had even been completed, the building had sunk more than that amount, and it had done so unevenly. By 2016, when the public became aware that there was a problem, the tower had sunk by 16 inches, and it was listing the port, as a sailor would say. At the top of the building, it was off plumb by about two feet. You can imagine the lawsuits that followed. As of today, there is a $100 million project underway to arrest the settling and to perhaps eventually bring the tower to its correct vertical position. Foundations are very important. I bring that up because the Apostle Paul is making the case that our salvation does not rest upon a shaky foundation, but upon a foundation that is rock solid, incapable of being moved, because it does not rely upon us. He has been speaking of Abraham, whose faith was counted unto him as righteousness, as the Scripture declares. But there were those who were insisting that such an approach negated the Mosaic law that God had given and that Paul was an antinomian who needed to take the law into account. But Paul insisted that the foundation for our salvation can never be the law for a variety of reasons. The first is that we are incapable of keeping the law. For for three chapters, he's been arguing that we are all guilty before God. Whether we have the Mosaic law or not, Whether Jew or Gentile, we cannot behave in a righteous fashion before God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous. Not one. And he will keep reminding us of this as he goes along in his letter. But secondly, Abraham was not justified by the law since he lived over 400 years before the law of Moses was given. And yet the Scripture tells us that God counted him, counted his faith unto him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified before God. How could that be if the law is necessary for our justification? No, Abraham was justified before God through faith in the promise that God made to him. And this Paul argues, is the unshakable foundation upon which every person must rest if he desires to be secure in his salvation. If it is, as Paul's opponents argue, an adherence to the law that sets you right with God, then that would mean that Abraham's faith is null and the promise that God gave to him is void. It it would mean that God offered something entirely unattainable with one hand while taking it away with the other, which would be particularly cruel. But that's not what God was doing or is doing, because the salvation that God offers cannot be attained through an adherence to the law. The law does not produce 
righteousness, it produces wrath. Paul says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. And what he means there is that the law establishes a boundary, a line that one should not cross. The word transgression means to overstep or to offend, to, to pass by someone without noticing them. And so in this case, as soon as God says, Thou shalt not, we sinful human beings are tempted to do that very thing. Before God gave the law, we might not have necessarily considered it. But as soon as we're told that we must not do that, our sinful natures are such that we want to rebel against God and do that very thing. And the evil one takes the prohibition and whispers in our ear that we should test that line, test that boundary. God says, do not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And the devil says, or what? Or what? Go ahead. See if anything negative happens when you do not speak the whole truth to your neighbor because what you're going to discover is that you will benefit from stretching the truth. But as soon as we do that, as soon as we fail to follow God's law, what we discover is a guilt that stems from God's displeasure with us for dishonoring Him by misleading our neighbor. The law does not, cannot produce righteousness. It produces wrath. And if our salvation rests upon our ability to keep the law, we will never be saved. And God knows this, which is why God does not require that. God did not give the law as a means of saving us. God gave the law so that we could see how sinful we are. God gave the law to increase our awareness of our separation from God and our need for a Savior. And this is why Paul contends that our salvation depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. The promise that God made to Abraham pertained to him, but not only to him. The promise was to him and to his offspring. The promise was that Abraham would be the father of many nations. This is why God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means father. Abraham means father of many or father of a multitude. But God was not primarily speaking biologically there. God had a far greater plan. Every man of Abraham's generation could have been the father of a multitude, given that he lived thousands of years ago. Biologically speaking, it would have been a statistical given that almost every man would have eventually been the father of a multitude. But that was not the basis of the promise that God extended God counted Abram's faith as righteousness. God had set Abraham in right standing with himself. God had declared Abram to be justified in his sight. And it was this promise that God was multiplying through Abraham. God was saying to him that his trust in God's word would lead to a multitude of others just like him who would be justified by means of their faith in God 
through Christ Jesus. And in this way, God's promise of being justified by faith rests upon God's grace and not on works of the law. That is to say that the plan for salvation is dependent upon God and not upon us, which is why it's guaranteed. John MacArthur once said, If you could lose your salvation, you would. But thankfully, God has established a foundation that does not depend upon us in any way. It depends upon God and His ability to save. And because this salvation does not rest upon the law, but upon the grace of God received by faith, it makes it universal in, in this sense. That people of every tribe and tongue and nation may be given this good news and invited to partake of the free gift. The only requirement is that they must believe. Now let's stop and consider that just for a moment. What does it mean to believe? What does it what it does not mean is a mere intellectual assent. Notice what Paul says here of Abraham's faith. He says, in hope he believed against hope. That is to say that Abraham had every reason intellectually to not have any hope in the promise that God had given to him. God said that Abraham and Sarah would have a child of their own. And yet, when Abraham stood in front of the mirror and studied himself, all he saw was a very wrinkled face staring back at him through cloudy cataracts filled with aches and pains, with hands crippled by arthritis, simply happy that he woke up that day. And when he looked at Sarah, his wife, whom the Bible describes as being very beautiful when she was 65, while he considered that he was a very lucky man in that department, age had also had an impact upon her, plus he also knew that she was barren. When it came to producing children, their expiration date had long come and gone. Paul phrases all of that like this, that Abraham considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now here's the thing. People often believe that faith is a kind of blinders-on approach to life. That is, that we Christians refuse to consider the facts. That's not the case at all. Faith considers all the facts. Faith does not bury its head in the sand. It does not hide under the blankets until the darkness passes. It doesn't cover its ears and sing la-la-la-la-la in an effort to drown out what the world is saying. Faith considers it all. The fact of the matter is that the world does not consider it all. The world refuses to consider what the Creator has said. The world works overtime to silence the truth that is staring them in the face. The world would have you believe that devoid of God, the magnificence and intricacies of the universe and all that is in it sprang into existence one day out of nothing. That some, nothing produced something. 
The world would have you believe that it is impossible to define what a woman is, but that that it is possible for men to become pregnant and have babies. The world would have you believe that the only way to correct oppression is to use oppression to oppress the oppressors. And the world would have you believe that good is evil and evil is good. And as Christians, you wonder what has happened to our world that it has suddenly become untethered from reality. Faith is not untethered from reality or from the facts it considers it all, including what God has said. Even though Abraham considered his age and Sarah's age and the fact that they were beyond their expiration dates where having babies was concerned, there was one fact that he could not ignore. God had come to him and made a promise to him, and that one fact trumped all the other facts. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham received a promise that he would have a son through whom many more descendants would come, one of whom would one day save the world by his atoning work. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And whatever it was that God revealed to Abraham about the Christ, it was such that Abraham became unwavering in his faith. Paul says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, part of our problem is when we call into question the attributes of God, for then doubt creeps into our thinking. Something horrible happens to someone we know and we ask, why would God allow such a thing to happen? as though the goodness of God has evaporated overnight, instead of laying the blame where it belongs, at our sinful feet. Or we become all animated over a computer model that tells us that the world's thermostat has gone haywire and we must do something about it, as though God has fallen asleep at the switch, ignoring the fact that by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Abraham did not ignore the facts, but he considered all the facts. And he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that was why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And this is what it is to have faith in God. It is to be fully convinced that what God has said, God will do. And should a person have doubts about that, that person needs to spend more time with the written Word of God. What convinced Abraham was the Word of God. God spoke and Abraham listened and then he believed. 
And the only way for a person to know the God that Abraham knew is to spend time in the Word. It is here in the pages of Scripture that the clearest understanding of God in all of His perfect attributes comes into right focus. And our imperfect understanding is steadily transformed until the day comes when we see as we have never seen before and our faith grows and matures until we no longer care what the world says is true because we've considered all things, including the promises of God. And our faith is built on the promise of God which rests on His grace. And before we close, we need to look at the closing sentence of this chapter where Paul reminds his Roman audience that the promise God gave to Abraham was not only to him, but to us also, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The faith that saves is a faith that is centered on the promise God gave to Abraham that has come to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. What God was promising to Abraham was a salvation that would rest upon a future offspring who would stand in our place paying the price for all our trespasses. We spoke earlier of Paul's statement that the law brings wrath. And you see, from our side, we did not know fully just how fallen we were or how sinful we were until God gave the law. And the law opened our eyes to see the depth of our sinfulness. And with that revelation also came an understanding of God's righteous indignation or wrath towards our sin. And the promise that God gave to Abraham was looking forward to one of Abraham's descendants who would one day stand in our place, absorbing the full measure of God's wrath. For only then would God be able to fully justify us or declare us to be in right standing before His bar of judgment based upon the righteousness of that future descendant. All of Abraham's sins would be paid by this descendant. All of Isaac's sins would be paid by this descendant. All of Jacob's sins would be paid by this descendant. All the sins of Abraham's descendants who put their full faith in this promise of God would be paid by this future descendant. And just as Abraham was fully convinced beyond all doubt that God would deliver on his promise, so we must be fully convinced that what God has brought to full fruition in Christ is sufficient to pay for our sins. And that by faith alone in Christ alone, God will accept us as his own. Now, you may be wondering how we can be assured that God will forgive us based upon the shed blood of Christ. And the reason that we can know for sure is because of the final phrase of this chapter, that Christ was raised for our justification. You see, if the atoning work of Christ had not been acceptable to God the Father, If there had been a single imperfection in his life, 
in his character, in his thoughts, in his deeds, in his suffering, if there had been a moment of moral failure that only God could have seen, then Jesus would not have been raised from the dead. And had that been the case, you can be assured that the antagonistic Jews of Jesus' day would have established a plaque above the tomb where he was laid, declaring Jesus to be an imposter to end all imposters. And if you were to travel to Jerusalem today, you would find it still there, declaring him to be a fraud and a charlatan. But that's not what happened. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And he appeared to his disciples, to Peter and all the rest. There was even a moment when he appeared to as many as 500 of them at one time, making the news of his resurrection one which his antagonists could not contain. And those who had faith in him gave glory to God along with Abraham, for they became fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And because Christ rose from the dead, it brings assurance to everyone who questions the efficacy of Jesus' atoning work that it was fully acceptable to the one who sits upon the throne where the seraphim continually cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy. Beloved Christ paid a price that we could not pay for sins that he did not owe. And his reward for such an act of sacrificial love was to be given a name above all other names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is the unshakable foundation upon which our faith is built. And if you have not yet come to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then I invite you to do so even now. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment?